Hey y'all, welcome back to another episode of Chats from the Blog Cabin, the show where I invite people into the blog cabin to chat about life. I'm Melissa and I'm your host. Today I'm chatting with Darren. Darren has had a variety of careers and he's actually said, uh, makes a joke and says that his friends joke that he likes to hear the sound of his own voice. So he's turned his career into public speaking and to be a motivational speaker and to teach people about how to sell things as well. So I really hope you really enjoyed this um, conversation that I have with Darren. He um, was on the U.S. racquetball team. He was He's done a lot of different things. He's coached this. He's in sales, so you will definitely learn something from this episode, whether you can apply just a little bit about what it like, what it's like to be on a team, or what it's like to be in a sales team, or marketing, or just how to market yourself, or how to present yourself in public. So, thank you so much for listening, and guess what I need you to do right now? That's right, start listening. Welcome back to another edition of Chats from the Blog Cabin. Today I'm joined by Darren. Darren, you have a really, I want to, I don't want to say strange, but a really great story. You used to, you used to play a professional racquetball? I have what you would call an eclectic background for sure. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about yourself. Well, so uh, first of all, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me, Melissa. Um, so I, I'm one of those people that never really was sure about what I wanted to be when I grew up until about mm, a year ago. <laughs> the one thing I was sure about was that I wanted to be a pro racquetball player. Uh, when I, I just kind of went through the motions with school, um, I'm the oldest child and grandchild in my family. So there were certain expectations that were set for me ahead of time. I followed along. I just kind of went through the motions the one thing I was sure about was that I wanted to pursue that athletic endeavor. And as a smaller guy, I wasn't tall enough to play tennis. And the reality is if you're not well-established as somebody in the tennis world by age 16, you've kind of missed your window. I didn't start playing racquetball till I was about 16. So I got a late start, but it's a much smaller sport. It is a finite amount of space. So in tennis, if you're not six feet tall, at least, it's hard for you to hit serves that don't have a lot of spin on them. And that makes it easy for your opponent to blast that shot back at you in racquetball, because it's a finite amount of space. It was, there are, there is no ideal body type. There's tall, thin guys, there's short, heavier guys. There's really short, fast guys, whatever. Uh, all of that is kind of a neutral level playing field. And I loved the high speed chaos that, that the sport is. And so when I first, the first tournament I ever played was actually a pro tournament. I played in the lowest amateur level possible. 
and got blown out day one, hour one of the tournament starting. But I sat on the bleachers and watched the pros play from that point forward and was just completely enthralled and decided at that moment, I want to be one of those guys. So I spent the next 10 years making that come to fruition. So, I mean, honestly, a lot of people, they first time they tried something and they failed, they were like, I'm not going to do this anymore. So what made you get have that drive to say, I'm going to work, I'm going to work and take 10 years and do, and make it into a fruition like that? I, I, I didn't know at the time it would take me 10 years. <laughs> that may have factored in. Um, but uh, I, I wrestled a little bit. My dad was a an excellent high school uh, wrestler and then went on to college and also coached um, when we lived back in Pennsylvania. And so I thought that was going to be my destiny, that I was going to get to college on a, a wrestling scholarship. I got injured in my freshman year wrestling off for, for a position on the team, and that was the end of my wrestling career. So I was involved in a sport where uh, it you know, was a lot of individual effort, even though it was part of a team. And I just kind of had the mindset of, you know, big picture, right? The, the immediate setbacks only play a small part in the big picture of things. And so after my wrestling career came to an end, I was able to parlay that into my racquetball career. And uh, I... I just found, I just thought, you know, the guys walking around in the cool warm-up suits, travel around in the in the, the country playing racquetball for a living was a great lifestyle for me. And so that, that kind of contributed to it as well. And I just kept grinding until I got there. So what made you decide to stop traveling and stop doing this? Eight or? <laughs> Burnout. Burnout, okay. <laughs> so I, it, it's a, it was a tough life. I mean, a, a tough way to make a living, I should say. Uh, I was very fortunate to to pursue that dream until age 30. I turned pro at 24, which was a little later than some of my peers, but I also got a, a later start too. So I did it till I was completely burned out. I did. I never made any money as a racquetball player. I always spent more than I won in prize money. So at some point, that took its toll. Um, you know, standing in the service box, being down two games to zero, and down you know, eight points to four in a game to 11, knowing that if I don't win this match, I don't have gas money to get home or I can't buy a plane ticket to the next tournament. That's a lot of pressure. And eventually it just got to be more than I could handle. And I also truly believe that I did reach my absolute peak of potential. I, I never thought I was going to be number one. I didn't set out necessarily to do that. Um, I wanted to maximize what I thought I could do and eking into the top 20 in the world for about three years was basically mission accomplished at that point. So I hung it up and decided to pursue other things at that point. And one of the things you pursued was coaching, correct? Yeah, I, I did take a break for a while. I needed to step away from the game and, and let some of the job quality of that wear off. Um, as much fun as it was at times being a competitive athlete, it did take on the feeling of being a job after a while. And so I needed to let that fade for a little bit. But in 2007, I started coaching the ASU racquetball team. And I was extremely fortunate to have inherited a, a pretty established club that just needed a coach to, to put them on the map. And so from that point forward, in 14 years and counting, I've been the head coach there and have had some amazing experiences uh, trying to share my knowledge base with with the younger players that were coming into that program. 
So you say a club. So honestly, what makes up a team? Because how many players are on the team? Because there's only so many players that are actually on the court at one time. So right. talk about that. So it's a club sport, meaning that it's not a true Division One NCAA sport like football and baseball and things like that are, at least at ASU. There's a few schools where it meets that criteria, but not at a large school like Arizona State. Um, we would have about 25 to 30 kids in the club. And from that, we would play off to have six guys and six girls to be the team itself. And we would play the some local events for practice and then our the main thing that we focused on was the intercollegiate racquetball championships, which was a once a year event. Sometimes we hosted those at Arizona state university. Other years we traveled to go compete in that. So you took that whole little nugget of coaching, what you learned in your professional career as playing racquetball and turned it into what, what have you turned, turned it into? So coaching that group of kids has been the most personally rewarding thing I've ever done. I have grown an awful lot myself. I, I'm sure they have taught me as much as I've ever taught them. Um, it, it's, I've had the great fortune of having some amazing relationships come out of that. Um, I've been to a few weddings of some of my players, I'm still in very close contact with a bunch of them today. So that, that has been an amazing thing for sure. But the way that that has influenced my my professional career in, in the sales world is that every, everybody that I work with is different. They come from different backgrounds, different levels of experience. I've had some junior world champions come to play on the team. And I've had people who have never played racquetball before on the same team. So being able to say the same thing in a very different way to a bunch of different people proved to be really good practice for the sales world for sure. So I've definitely gl gleaned that from, from my coaching experience. And you've also turned it into a public speaking as well, correct? Yes, I I have. Uh, it's funny, I, I've dabbled with this at a couple of different times in my life, but I never really sunk my teeth in, into it until recently. Um, as part of my pro racquetball career, the biggest event that we played each year was the US Open Racquetball Championships. And you had to be uh, one of the top marquee players to make it onto the showcase court well, I found another way to do that. I ended up being the MC of that event after I was eliminated from the tournament, unfortunately, kind of early on. <laughs> um, and I would interview the players after the matches. I would get the crowd riled up. I would do contests with people from the, from the stands and things like that. And so I, the first foray into doing any kind of like public speaking or, or you know, front and center, all eyes on you kind of a thing, was walking out onto the stadium court with a thousand people in the stands, yelling and screaming, you know, for the for during the match, and then interviewing the players afterwards and stuff. And it was quite nerve wracking the first two or three times I did it, but by the end of the weekend, it's I loved it, and it was like I had been doing it all my life. So it seemed like something I was suited for and enjoyed. And then um, I, I did go to a boot camp kind of thing for. To, do, to be a keynote speaker, but you know, life got in the way. I did some different things and I never pursued that at that time. But having a presence on campus at ASU has afforded me the opportunity to do some speaking in the business school there, um, as well as Northern Arizona University where I actually attended briefly. Uh, I am a, a resident speaker for, for their 
um, business school and programs that they offer as well. So that's been a really my start into public speaking. And now I'm branching that out into working with, with companies and other organizations as well. So talk me through it. How much different is it from actually going in and being a player on the racquetball court to being a public speaker on the racquetball court? <laughs> How did you get yourself revved up for each way? Was it the same way or was it a little bit differently? Uh, revved up isn't the right word. It's calmed down. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and even being in sales, it's a very similar atmosphere as it is competing on in an individual sport. So, um, I would, in racquetball, I would fly to another city, I would put on my uniform, go compete for an hour to 90 minutes, hopefully get a win, and at the end of the weekend, I would fly home, and then at some point, I would do that again. Well, that's very similar to my sales career, where I fly back east to present to a major company, I put on my uniform, right, now it's a suit and tie instead of my athletic gear, go present to their decision-making team, do my thing for an hour to 90 minutes, hopefully get a win and fly home. Public speaking is very, very similar. I go somewhere, I put on my uniform. I don't wear a suit and tie for that. Um, and I, I go do my thing for a little bit and then I, and I travel home. So all of those things have a lot of parallel to them. But the big thing that I do, like you said, I, I, I don't need to listen to music to get pumped up. I need to do some breathing exercises to calm down and not be overly excited, talking too fast. I already talk with my hands, so I don't want to do too much of that kind of stuff. So I need to actually shift gears down instead of up to get ready for those things. So what are some tips that you can give people that are actually, you know, going into sales or going into actually trying to pitch to a company? Because I know a lot of people are very nervous when they're getting up in front of people mm -hmm. and having to talk to anybody. Because I had really bad anxiety of being in front of a camera until COVID hit. And then I'm like, I, hate, I, I need my human interaction. So I started yeah. this, you know, so. Yeah, so it. There's, you know, everybody's a little bit different. Some people may need to get psyched up for that. I think most people would have a similar experience that I do. So two things jump to mind right away. One, you have to know what you're talking about, right? If you feel underprepared, that makes you way more nervous for sure. Everybody wants to win. Not everybody wants to do the work to prepare. So that's definitely something my athletic background taught me really well. If I was underprepared for a tournament, it was blatantly obvious on the court. And same thing in sales or public speaking. If I'm undereducated in a topic that I'm talking about, I that already lends the to the anxiety of that situation. And if then if somebody throws a question at me that I don't know the answer to, while that is acceptable, and to tell somebody, you know what, I'm gonna have to research that and get back to you, dealing with that in the moment is certainly stressful. Certainly the other thing that is a big thing, a, a big help, I teach this to all my racquetball players because it is a life skill, not just an athletic skill. Um, breathing properly when you get nervous makes all the difference in the world. If you can catch yourself with that shallow breathing and breathing through your mouth like you do when you have that flight or fight ex experience, um, that is not the way you want to operate. You need to be in a calm mindset. And whether you do yoga or uh, if you learn to play an instrument, if you study martial arts, they all teach you breathing techniques very, very early on. And it's always the same thing. Breathe in through your nose 
and push your stomach out when you inhale. And then when you exhale, push your stomach in and squish the air out of you. That's the opposite of how most of us do it in our as adults. We do that as children. We learn as babies, that's how we do it. And then at some point we make the switch to breathe, chest breathing instead of diaphragmatic breathing. And that heightens your anxiety for sure. So that's that's my number one secret for that stuff. Wow, I never knew that that breathing can heighten your anxiety. That's that's some so cool. I know the Apple Watch has where it tells you to breathe. It's like breathe, and you're like right. Ooh. But what they don't mean is go <sighs> right. What they want you to do, and I think they should specify more, is to inhale and exhale. That just from doing that one breath, I felt a calming sensation run over me, right? And with a little bit of practice, it happens instantly. And that's the impact that you want that to have. You don't want to have to take, you know, you don't you don't get to call time out for five minutes and go breathe so you calm down, right? You need to be able to do it as quickly as possible. And at this point, I can do that in, in one breath and feel a big difference right away. So what are some of the other tips that you were able to relate to your players that they can also take off the court as well? <laughs> you know, it's funny. One that comes up all the time that people never think about is that the other person is nervous too. Mm -hmm. When you're in a competitive scenario, a lot of times you forget about the other guy also, or the other person also being in that same situation and having your same level of anxiety and nervousness, maybe lack of experience or whatever it may be. And so I always reminded people the way I would do it was I would watch the players warm up. And when my player would come out, I would kind of just whisper to them, they look really nervous. You're going to be fine. And I, I consider myself a very good coach. So I would give somebody a, a simple game plan to follow. And if, as long as they were able to execute that to some level, they probably did just fine. But, but whispering in their ear, man, that guy looks nervous. You're going to be fine. Would just settle them down so much more. And that enabled them to go in and execute the game plan that we had talked about. So that's definitely something that lots of people never consider. Even when you're doing a sales presentation, I realize that the CEO who is sitting at the end of the table isn't nervous to meet me, but I'm there for a reason. And that reason is going to have a lot of impact on the company. And therefore, he's got some skin in the game too. Wow. I know because you you don't have somebody standing next to you going, they're nervous too, because you don't, you don't have that little person in your ear all the time. Right. So that's a, that that's one thing I never would have thought of is the CEO actually having the skin in the game. You thinking to some degree, I mean, I don't, uh, I assume that they're going to interview people other than just my company. Um, I'm in a, I'm in a very niche business. So I know the other people who are going to come to the table. Sometimes they're waiting outside for their turn to come in and present. And so that for me makes it a little bit easier too, because I know what, how I present my company's services and I know how my competitors typically represent themselves. And so that all I have to do is paint the picture as to why we're the best partner of choice and everything else kind of falls into place from there. So you talk about painting a picture, paint us a picture, pretty much. How would you go in? You don't have to do specifics, but just kind of paint a general picture. Well, first thing is you have to ask questions and listen, right? I don't ever, and I think my competitors are guilty of this. Hopefully none of them watch my watch this uh, podcast and figure out what they're doing wrong. Um, uh, 
but uh, everybody does the typical sales thing of show up and start throwing features and benefits out on the table for everybody to be wowed by. Um, that's not the way to go. You need to, you need to do your homework ahead of time. Be prepared. Like I said earlier, obviously I've been speaking to somebody within the company that can shed some light on why they're reaching out, what they're struggling with. Do they work with a competitor currently and are unhappy or have they never had our type of service and want to learn more about it and try to implement it? So that dictates how I start out for sure is I want to ask questions of everybody else on the decision-making team as to what they need, right? To figure out what the pain points are. And then I can share my story of how we solve those problems and how we're the partner of choice instead of just throwing the brochure out on the table, so to speak, and hoping that they can extrapolate, okay, this would help us do this. This would help us do that. I want to show them and illustrate that during my presentation. So basically it works for anything in life too, is like you're going to, and you're going to an organization that you want to work with. You're going to show them, Hey, this is how I can help you. This is how yep. we can help each other. So I love Correct. that. It, with my eclectic background, I, the, the eight years I've spent at triage now, my current, my current company, um, that's the longest I've spent anywhere other than pursuing the racquetball thing. So I never got to be an expert at anything. I would, I changed industries every two or three years. Everything was kind of related to sales, but it was always a new group of information to learn. So I never got the level of comfort that I have now where I can walk into the boardroom at a major insurance carrier or somebody that's a, a household company name and feel 100% confident that I know everything that I need to know to be here today. So if you're in that situation, you, you just have to prepare as best you can and know your material that you're currently uh, uh, in charge of, so to speak, or responsible for backwards and forwards. And then when you get hit with a question that you don't know, you have to be honest and say, you know what, I'm going to have to call for backup on that one, but I, I will follow up with you with an answer. And then of course you have to follow through. That shows your level of integrity and engagement for that client. If you deflect a question that you don't know the answer to and then never follow up, you're not establishing yourself as a very good partner. I love the fact that you're saying that you have to, if you don't know the answer, don't sit there and flub around and try to <laughs> make it like, you know, the answer, you be open and honest with people and say, Hey, I don't know the answer, but I'm going to find out for you. That's a typical salesperson move is to make something up and then come back to the office and go, can we do that? <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. That causes all kinds of problems. And, and internally your operations team will hate you for it because you're, you're making promises or you're roping them into doing things that they typically don't or can't do. And now you're expecting them to solve the problem for you. You just have to, you know, tell the truth and fess up once in a while that, Hey, you know what? You caught me on that one, but I can certainly follow up with a, with an answer for you shortly. And I think also too, that's, that's kind of shows, like you said, your integrity as well to say, Hey, I don't know this um, answer, but I'll get back with you because if you're truthful to the company, they're more likely to work with you as well. Correct. I certainly believe so. I mean, my, one of the things that I do public speaking on is the fact that your reputation is transferable. Again, I've been through a bunch of different industries until I settled into where I am now eight years ago. But anybody that I've worked with in the past, almost anybody, 
um, I would feel very confident somebody reaching out to uh, a connection on my LinkedIn profile or calling a former employer and saying, hey, tell me about this person. Would you would you rehire them at this point? And and I, I'm confident that everybody would say, oh, yeah, he, uh, you know, for whatever reason, decided to leave this position, but we would we would welcome him back. And so that kind of social currency carries a ton of weight to it for sure. So let's talk about building your reputation. So what are some of the things that people need to do to build reputation of being authentic and being genuine and someone that they, they can trust? Well, I think that, you know, I, we touched on a few of the points for sure, but listen, being a good listener, right? It's not all about you. It is, you, you need to understand. And, and sometimes you even have to kind of dissect what somebody tells you and understand, well, this is what they said, but what they meant was this. And really listen, don't wait for your turn to talk, but listen to somebody and then provide a thoughtful answer or a solution or a contribution to that conversation. That's one for sure. People want to feel heard. And if you're finishing people's sentences or going, yeah, 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 I got it. Okay, here's here's the solution. That You're not making them feel like that they're that you're listening to them and really considering what they have to say. So that's certainly one thing for sure. And then again, follow up is big, right? It's so easy to get busy and you know, you're in a 90-minute presentation, you jot down a note to follow up about something, and then it gets lost in the shuffle and you never think about it. That doesn't seem like a big deal to you, maybe, because the, they they may they may have really liked your presentation. But one person on that decision committee may be waiting for an answer, and that's the linchpin to this working or not. And as small as it seems, those kind of details can make or break those kind of deals. So following up and following through, being a person of your word, I will get back to you on that. You have to honor that. If you don't, you're sullying your reputation for sure. So let's talk about following through, following up. Besides writing yourself a note, somewhere that, like you said, gets lost because things don't get lost. How else can you remember to follow up? Um, one of the things I do is I use my phone quite a bit on the voice recorder on my phone. Uh, if I'm driving, obviously I don't want to try to, you know, text myself a message or put that in my notes or whatever. Uh, my handwriting's bad enough when I'm driving and trying to see what I'm writing. That's I can't even read it when I get to my destination anyway. So if I'm in a presentation and I jot a note down, I will go sit in the lobby or sit in, in my car before I leave and look at my notes and then either uh, write out a more descriptive uh, recollection of that or instructions on what I need to do. Or in some cases, I can shoot somebody an email right away and get an answer. There's been a few times where I've walked back in and said, hey, I, I got an answer already. Um, yes, we can do the first two things, but not the third but here's a workaround for that. And having an answer that fast sometimes is really impressive to a, a prospective client as well. But the big thing is, you know, you use the tools you have, right? Jot down notes, use your voice recorder, email yourself a reminder, plug in a calendar note, follow up with Michael on, on Monday morning, whatever it is, you just have to figure out what, what best serves you to, to facilitate that follow-up. For me, having stuff on my calendar is an easy way to do it. I, I have a CRM, but if I just plug a note into my calendar in my phone really quickly, that serves me really well to, to remind me to do a follow-up. 
I love what you said about how you would sit down after a meeting, either in the lobby or in your car and immediately go through your notes. Because I think that's when it's freshest in your mind. Right. That while you're doing it, let's go ahead and get this out of the way. And if you don't get an answer, then at least you know that's one thing that you've already done, that you've already put it out there so that the answer is going to come back later on. Yeah, that's as that's as fresh in your mind as things will be. Sometimes the plane ride home can can function in that way as well. Um, if I everybody's different, there's there's places I go where people want to literally chat and get to know you before we talk any business. And then there's other times where it is a uh, there's several vendors that are lined up. You have one hour. You have 45 minutes. We're going to talk about you for 15 minutes. And then we're going to get the next uh, presenter in here. So there's there's no fluff. There's no getting to know one another. I need to hit the ground running. But there's always something that comes up that I consider valuable for future reference. Uh, I'm, a, I'm an avid fly fisherman. So if I if I on my on my laptop background is a picture of me fly fishing. So when I open the presentation, if somebody comments on that. I want to follow up and say, hey, you must be a fellow fly fisherman. Check out this picture or where, where's your favorite destination to start a conversation either at that time if, if time is available or as a sidebar. Uh, here, here's the proposal, by the way. I, I noticed that you mentioned or that you commented on the fly fishing picture. You know, tell me about your experience, something like that. And now you're bridging that gap between unknown salesperson to somewhat familiar hopefully future partner. So you put getting yourself a little in there without really being that obvious and in your face. Right. right. So what other subtle things like can you do like that? Well, here's one I don't do that I think people are adverse to. And it's like, it's kind of like a sales 101 thing that's taught all the time, which is why I hate it. <laughs> and that is to repeat people's names, Melissa, every time you say something, Melissa, because Melissa, I want you to pay attention here. That gets so annoying, right? It and, and it makes it seem like it's so scripted and structured because you don't do that in normal conversations, right? When you're sitting around the dinner table with a few friends, you're not saying Eric this, Matt that, Ryan this, you're just talking, right? So it that's that seems like something that people do all the time that I definitely advise against. So I've, you know, I've shared a couple of do's that would certainly be a do not example for sure. That is so funny. <laughs> I honestly would think that would be kind of awkward if you kept saying someone's name over and over and over again. It's like, wow, they really are obsessed with saying my name. Yeah. And again, it's, it's such a basic thing that is taught too much. It's an old school idea, I believe. Um, you know, it, it just, it doesn't flow very well. And one of the biggest things, you know, this is a, a, an old sales maxim that still holds very, very true. People buy from who they like and who they trust. That's, that's a lot of what my job is to be able to forge a connection with a, a, a team of complete strangers in a very short amount of time to get them to understand that I am your best choice as a partner. My company services are great but they're not exponentially better than any competitor. So it really does come down to who's going to provide the best solutions, the best relationship, the best working environment. And that's really what I try to focus on. There's a few things that we do better than others, but for me as a, as the face of the, of the sales team and the, and the company in general, 
I definitely focus on the idea that I want to build as much trust and rapport with everybody that I can so that, again, I never promise perfection. I want them to know that if something does go wrong, I can fix it. Whatever it is, call me, even if I'm not the, the actual person who will solve the problem, call me and I'll get the problem solved. And that gives people a lot of peace of mind to choose us over others. So what happens when you say you can fix it, but you actually can't fix it? I've never really had a situation where that's occurred in my, in my current job. Um, there's been other examples where I've just had to apologize and say, look, that was my fault. That's hundred percent on me. Uh, I've, I definitely have learned from this experience and I will not let that happen again. Uh, I, I, I did orthopedics and trauma sales for Johnson and Johnson uh, for a little while. I had a little mishap that occurred in the OR one time that put the doctor in a bad situation. It was a hundred percent my fault, sort of. I mean, I was the person there. The team around me kind of stumbled a little bit too, but I was the one that had to take the brunt of that. And, uh, you know, I, I got, I was told I waited for him after the surgery and he walked up and he put his arms on my shoulders and I thought, Oh my God, he's going to choke me. And <laughs> he said, son, it's going to be a while before you're welcome back in my OR. And I said, yes, sir. You know, there was nothing else I could say to him at that point that would have made a difference. A year later, I was covering a case that he was the surgeon. And ahead of time, I went and reintroduced myself and said, you may remember me. I wanted to make sure it was okay for me to cover the case today. And he actually asked me a couple of technical questions that I answered right off the cuff. And he's like, come on in, we'll be fine. But boy, a year before that, I was very, very concerned uh, that I would get fired or, you know, like I said, punched in the face <laughs> based on his initial reaction. <laughs> wow. So how do you overcome something like that? Because that could have easily made you, could have ended your career right there. But you managed to come back and work with that doctor again and knew that when he asked you those questions, you like bam, 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 right off the bat. Did you kind of say, you know, I've got to, I've got to do better, make that as a learning experience. I have to do better. I have to be better. Well, the way I ended up in that situation was kind of a unique set of circumstances. I wasn't really ready to be in that situation, but no one else was available due to a, a snafu with the scheduling. So I, I did what I thought was the right thing to do as a team member, which was I volunteered and said, I'll go handle it. The problem was I was in over my head with a, with a doctor that is, how do I put this nicely? A little temperamental. <laughs> Some of them can be. And that's a bad combo. He's used to somebody just firing off answers anytime he asks a question. And the doctors know how to do the procedures. My job is tech support for the equipment to do a hip replacement or a total knee replacement or things like that. We were doing a trauma case and it was not terribly complex, but again, I was just in over my head at the beginning. So once we got through that initial situation and he, nothing bad happened to the patient, everything worked out okay. And the fact that I, you know, stuck around and didn't just disappear and try to avoid him from now on, uh, I think that was the right thing to do from an integrity standpoint. And, you know, I apologized. I said, you know, hey, I'm, I was the only one available. I apologize that I was not more help. You know, I will not, I will not let this happen again, basically meaning I won't be on my own or I will make sure I am prepared 
completely before I find myself in this situation again. So I, I did the legwork. I practiced. I got better. I had a year under my belt before I went back to him. And then I, I did have to kind of prove that I had learned my lesson and knew my craft a little better. And we were fine from that point forward. Well, I, I love that story about, you know, being able to overcome because you could have easily been, man, I'm, I might as well just quit this job and go do something else. Right. <laughs> it was, it was scary because we had a, an elderly patient under anesthesia much longer than planned. And while that's, it's kind of routine, but there's always risks involved and that could have taken a horrendous turn. And the, the reality of the situation is that that's all on the doctor, even though that was my doing a bad outcome has his name on it, not mine. And so that was why he was so upset at the time um, because I put him in a very, very bad situation due to my lack of knowledge and experience. And again, I should have had other team members that were able to assist and it, it just didn't work out that way. So I did the best I could. I felt failed miserably, but I did recover from it. So now let's talk about your website. Sure. What made you decide to create your website? Well, like I said, you know, I, I finally figured out what I'd want to be when I grow up. And <laughs> um, as my friends will jokingly tell you, I love the sound of my own voice, hence the name Darren Chatter, because I'm just chattering on about things. But I, I also got so much personal growth from being a coach, but I, I also get a lot of feedback from my team members about how much I have been able to help them. So I wanted to expand that to as wide of an audience as possible. Um, my sister's children are, are, she has three boys that are still in school. Um, they, I, I ask them questions and I, and because I speak at the universities, I ask questions of the kids all the time. And you and I take for granted some of the things that they are not being taught. And so I've started doing a, a YouTube channel with some videos the, the production quality is terrible, but the, the message is good, I think. Um, and I, I started reading some of my blogs. I've written 256 blogs so far, um, but a lot of the younger audience doesn't read a blog. So I started reading my favorite blogs over a drone video so that they can listen to it or watch it on YouTube instead of having to read it. So the, the website has become a portal for sharing that type of information. And obviously it's a little bit of a business card for me too. It talks about my background, my, my athletic career, my professional career, the places that I've done speaking to so far, and, and then, you know, some other things that I have as well. So it's, you know, it's a typical calling card, um, but it serves some other purposes too. So talk about some of the skills that they aren't teaching in school that you're teaching on your website. <laughs> So unfortunately, the list is long, but an easy one is personal finance. So I learned the hard way. Uh, during my racquetball career, I made some very bad financial decisions. Um, I was, uh, MasterCard was my sponsor, not officially, <laughs> my MasterCard. <laughs> so to make things worse, I was booking a hotel room and sharing that room with three or four other guys. They would give me cash for their part of the room. And I would spend that cash on the rest of my expenses for the weekend at that tournament instead of putting that towards paying that bill off at the end of the month. So at one point I was over $50,000 in credit card debt. 
And my first experience with a credit card when I went away to Northern Arizona University, which is about two hours north of Phoenix where I live, I got a I got a an offer in the mail from Discover Card, and it read, "Hey, we hear you're headed off to college. Here's a credit card in case of emergency." Right, air quotes. In case of emergency, here's a fifteen hundred dollars spending limit credit card in case you need it. Well, that sounds logical, right? I'm going two hours north. What if my car breaks down or whatever? I should probably have that in my back pocket just in case. Well, what they knew and what I learned was pretty soon I'm buying beer on Friday nights for me and my friends, taking the cash that they're giving me for their part of it and spending the cash, right? <laughs> same same old habits just creeping back in. That's where that habit started. And I ended up doing, doing that on the pro tour as well. So it's easy to get hooked in on that stuff. The, the credit card companies are sponsoring golf tournaments and sports stadiums around the world. Clearly they're winning that game and the average consumer is not. So I talk about all of the pitfalls that are set for you coming out of school, thinking that you deserve a new car or you're going to move into a cool condo. And now that you're making money for the first time in your life, all of those things are prime ways to get stuck in that hedonic treadmill that we just never jump off of. You buy a newer car, you buy a bigger house, et cetera, et cetera. And you can live your whole life that way. So I'm trying to get people to understand as soon as possible, although it's never too late, but the sooner the better you change those habits and understand that living below your means and putting away money for the future will make your life so much easier. I learned that the hard way. So that's definitely one that I focus on for sure. Yeah, I think a lot of young kids learn that the hard way. Well, student loans are just out of control these days, right? I mean, as funny as it sounds, I still have student loan debt. I, I, I left school and after I retired from playing racquetball, then I went back and finished through the University of Phoenix. And I amortized that loan for 25 years, but I was able to put it off starting to pay for it for quite a while and uh, you know the interest rate is so low, I've paid off every other piece of debt except for my house. Fannie Mae can get her money on a slow trickle at this point. I'm not even worried about ever paying that off, but it's a very slow, a very small amount at this point too. It's under $100 a month. So I'm not gonna write a check for 20 grand to get rid of a hundred bucks a month. I'll slow trickle that to them. Everything else got taken care of. My wife and I are debt-free except our house with the exception of my very, very small student loan payment every month. Wow. That's amazing. Congratulations. Again, that, that was a learned lesson the hard way. And I'm embarrassed to say it, but I share it because it should be shared. I put off proposing to my wife for a couple of years, trying to solve my debt problem instead of bringing that into our marriage. And I, I couldn't do it without her help. I had the wrong mentality about money. And so together we talked about that and she agreed to take on that responsibility with me and together we have overcome that problem. And so as, like I said, it's, it's an embarrassing story, but I don't hesitate to share it because so many other people find themselves in that situation. And I think it's very, very important to understand a, you're not alone and B there are answers to solving those problems. Wow. I'd love that story. 
So is there anything else? Our time's almost up. Is there anything else? Little wow, already? <laughs> See, I told you I love to chatter all about myself. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I have such a wide and diverse audience. It's hard to say, you know, there's one particular thing that I want to leave as a takeaway message. And, and that's kind of the point of the blogs and the website itself is that I'm, I'm a generalist in a lot of things. Um, I've had an eclectic background, so I do speak and write about a bunch of different things. Um, I don't do a lot on regular social media, but my LinkedIn profile, I have two actually. I have one for day job me, which is just Darren Shank, and then speaker me, which is the Darren Chatter LLC. Uh, I encourage people to reach out to me through those. Uh, either one is fine. I love it when people ask questions or you know th throw a scenario at me. Hey, you know, I I had this happen. What, what are your thoughts on this? I got, I didn't win this sales deal and here's what happened. Or uh, I'm trying to coach my son's little league team and here's a struggle that we always have. Whatever it is, I don't have the answers to everything, but I'm, I'm happy to share the answers that I do have with anybody. Well, Darren, I want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing your knowledge and, sh and being honest and open about, I mean, not a lot of people would talk about being so far in debt when you got out of the racquetball, but you showed that you can come out of debt that way. Yeah. Too. That's, uh, that's the big thing is I'm, I'm trying to lead by example with some of those things, even though I did the wrong thing. If I, if you can learn from my mistakes, you will be way better off instead of figuring that stuff out for yourself. Yeah. So thank you so much for being on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, guys, we will see you on the next chat from the blog cabin. Bye. Thanks. Wow. I really hope you enjoyed this episode with Darren. I have a lot more episodes like this coming up. I have some amazing guests coming on still. Um, so to make sure that you don't miss an episode, please like, subscribe, leave a rating or review wherever you listen to this podcast on. Hop over to YouTube, click subscribe on Chats from the Blog Cabin so you can see when it comes on live. And thank you so much for being part of the podcast family. My heart goes out to you. Always remember, be blessed. And remember, keep chatting.